here with my friend Dwayne Lundy. Uh, we've been sitting here for a minute, so it's like already comfortable and whatever. Yeah. But it's just strange to start a podcast in the middle of a conversation. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, this is my friend Dwayne. He recorded Abby Hamilton, which is the artist I play for a couple years ago. And we've got more stuff that'll eventually come out. Who knows when that is? Yeah. <laughs> uh, some other acts, just so I don't forget. Uh, well, how can you forget? Uh, he has recorded a song that is on a Ringo Starr album. Holy crap. Mm-hmm. Uh, a, a Beatle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll just let that go. Uh, you've worked with Bela Fleck, Michael McDonald, yep. Jim James, Ben Lee, Sunday Valley. Um, your own compositions have been on TV shows like Sons of Anarchy. You're Grammy nominated. Yeah. Who knew? Holy crap, man. Yeah. <laughs> this is within the last two Couple years. years yeah. 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 That's amazing. Yeah. So, um, my big thing with Dwayne, so Dwayne is a very accomplished engineer and producer and, you know, I've worked with him just a little bit, but enough to kind of get a peek into his process and kind of one of the most interesting ways to frame this conversation though, is how your recording philosophy relates to bass. Mm -hmm. And so like, what the heck do you do with it? I know... It it just there's there's so many ways it can go where people are like oh you should have this tone or you should do this thing or you should show up this way or whatever like what is when a bass player shows up obviously most of the time it seems like you're doing a more organic singer songwriter legit great recording and the bass is a support instrument to that it's not the lead instrument mm-hmm. but like what do you hope somebody shows up with. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, bass is sort of, you know, the two things that are sort of tricky, snare drums and and bass. Yeah. You know, because Mm -hmm. they can ruin, you know, they can really ruin things or lay things on their side. Mm -hmm. So bass, uh, if it's a band, which is great, you know, you hope that uh, the pocket is there Mm -hmm. because that's everything. I mean, you know, how the the conversation, not only with the, I think everybody thinks of bass and drums being sort of tied together all the time, but I think think it's just all of it. Sure. Um, So, and, you know, an open mind, you know, not to be too broad or philosophical about it, but, Mm -hmm. you know, my job as a producer is to bring in a fresh ear mm-hmm. and listen to it in a way that hasn't been listened to probably before other than maybe a you know a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a family <laughs> right. member who's just yeah. stopped in on rehearsal that's really sort of what I do I do you know very little pre-production like oh, okay. I, you know I have I, I, I want to catch a vibe of what's going on. Uh-huh. I'm a real sort of song forward person yeah, right you know so make sure that the songs are there. I, I would almost prefer that the artists don't get too far down the rabbit hole to where, um, you know, they have either a demoitis type of mentality or they're mm-hmm. so tied to their parts that they can't really sort of see maybe the broader view of how the song yeah. or how the uh, their role in the band or in the song is, uh, you know, maybe helped a little bit or nourished. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as far as gear... You know, I'm not a real big gearhead, right. and I know that always comes as a little bit of a disappointment to some people. But I, I, I think that it's sort of standard fare. I mean, you know, make sure the thing is in tune. Make sure you're really right, comfortable sure. with yeah. it, and um, and then I have a bunch of stuff. Right. So that's it, the if best you need part help, of going over to your place. Yeah, I, I tried like, to sort of acquire enough stuff. Yeah, it may not even be a, another base. It could be, you know. Um, a pedal or a pick, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah. it, it just, it could be the little things or where yeah. people are literally sitting in the room or where they're monitoring yeah. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the, those are sort of the things I, I, I hope that somebody comes in with, um, sure. and yeah. a certain amount of confidence, you know, I mean, yeah. um, anybody that is playing in a band or coming in on a session or presenting a song, um, you know, there's all kinds of different sort of personality types, but um, whether you're shy or you're, you know, sort of verbose, the confidence factor is something that's not really faked. I mean, you either believe in the thing, your ability, or you don't. And um, so it's nice to have a good confident, you know, yeah. especially bass. 
I right. mean, you know, right. because you guys are controlling the entire sort of foundation of the way everything is rolling. Yeah. So, yeah. And the wrong note on bass, too, is just, it's, I, it's, it's not fair. <laughs> like, this is the yeah. therapy. It's not fair that it's that impactful when you play a wrong note. Yeah. But, like, it is the worst thing ever to experience. And I do it all the time. Uh, but, like... You got to get that, di- especially like when you're in a legit band or you're playing the songs a similar way every night. Mm-hmm. Like you just know the effect on that one night if you are thinking about hot dogs or what you're going to eat the mm-hmm. next day or whatever, and you hit the wrong one and you realize like the environment of the, you know, it extends to the recording process, but like especially a big room with a big PA. Oh, yeah. You see like a wave of people mm-hmm. react to extreme tension you know that goes from harmony yeah, to you don't have much that, margin <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah um i realized i just jumped into this whole thing super fast and mm. super rapid fire uh questions to you uh but yeah i feel like going back to like having the random toys thing uh i feel last time we recorded we worked on a song that was kind of killer's Bruce Springsteen E. Mm. So like when I think of like the killers, this dude has a seventies jazz bass, those round wounds and he's beating the snot out of it. So I was kind of doing that. I was playing electric bass with a pick and it wasn't really working for the sound. Then you gave me a felt pick, which I had never used in my life. The silent killers, which is like, (laughs) I don't know. One of those random little tricks that like I had this felt pick and it's super thick. So it was weird to play, Mm -hmm. but it gave me the vibe. It, it, Mm -hmm because the whole part was from me doing this mm-hmm. and that changes the way I do this because I'm like yeah, more yeah, like yeah, a yeah. guitar kind of stuff. Having, having that kind of stuff is important. Um, what are some of your other toys that you reach for if something's just missing or, uh, and we might get into maybe some of the bases you actually own that you might hand somebody to. Well, I love a sans amp mm-hmm. and I love a sans amp a lot on a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that I'm really familiar with. I know the tone of it. You know, it's not maybe the sexiest thing. I mean, I've been through all the DIs and the, you know, the the, the rectangled tube <laughs> right, stuff, yeah. you know, even the 1073 copies um, that are sort of, you know, on the desktop. Yeah. Um, I, I like a Sansam. I mean, it instantly has, it's got all, I'm also gear-wise sort of, it has to be incredibly transparent to me immediately. If it's not, mm-hmm. I know myself well enough. I'm just not going to learn it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not going to happen. So transparent, like intuitive to use, base, or transparent, treble, like how presence, it actually sounds. Sure. Both. Okay, yeah, both. Cool. And I want to hear stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, that's the other thing. The whole you have to learn to understand a piece of gear is not. To, you know, then that means I've got to learn it on somebody else's dime and time, and that's totally. not going to happen. Yeah. So I I, I have a certain excuse the pun baseline of gear that I have acquired over the years. And it's very streamlined. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had, you know, many consoles and every compressor known to man, tons of different pre's. And I found a particular sort of thing that I really liked. Um, so the sans amp was one of those things on bass. And I also sort of, you know, I was a Chad Blake guy Mm. and, um, Chad was a great engineer and has gone on to be an amazing, one of the most, innovative mixers and so when you get an endorsement you know or you know somebody validates something you're like well i have uh aesthetically i understand this what this guy's doing mm-hmm. um it's sort of like finding a sonic brother or sister out there yeah. so that's the reason i i got it and then i got three of them and then i started <laughs> right. using them on yeah. a lot of different things but the base is the one that is on i'd say 95 percent of everything that i will do yeah um and it's also, you know, uh, I, 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 I know where I want to start, uh-huh. but it, it's very maneuverable. So mm-hmm. that differs from player to player. Sure. Yep. Um, and then I'll run that out into, you know, generally another DI um, and, or maybe, you know, I'll run three different things, have an amp going. Um, mm-hmm. As far as like toys, I would say I like small amps on bass. Right. Yeah. Cool. I, I don't, I'm not much on, I've done... You know, the SVT, Schmega rigs, the Edens right. and all that yeah. stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 to me, air and bass 
and the way the kick drum works mm-hmm. and the way that I use different mics, you know, for me, it even goes into like, I'm a big ribbon mic guy. Right. You know, so on drums, you're you going to get a more saturated stuff. Yeah. You have the coals and the fad heads and the 44s right. and all that stuff. So bass for me is it's, it should move. Uh-huh. And it should glue things together, and it should have a specific tone. Um, so that those, you know, th- that that small amp, sans amp, and then running a DI out that'll save me, you know, from any problems right. that occur later on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're recording parallel dry, just yeah. in case. Yeah, uh, m- most of the time I am. Yeah, um, and that those type of things are about as deep as I'll go into, you know, the gear side of things as far as any, you know, peculiarities. Um, uh-huh. you know, I, I like some fuzz, I like, you know, so big muff or an old Fox pedal or, cool. but you know, I also mix pretty much everything I record or at least yeah. 95% of it. Mm-hmm. And I mix for other people. So yeah. there's a whole sequence like I'm thinking out in terms of what's going to happen in the mix. So how much of the stuff am I going to, you know, taper to the drive with that I'm committing to versus allowing me some flexibility later on um, is, you know, all that plays into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm pretty aggressive mixing with bass. I mean, I'm doing a lot to it after the fact. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that all, you know, I, I'm I'm sort of I work backwards a lot. You know, what's the song going to sound like when it's done? Right. And then, as opposed to, I see a lot of people go down, you know, very deep rabbit holes with their gear and their playing, and it gets so microy that the broad scope of how it's going to be, you know, affecting the song and the album mm-hmm. and the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to you got to stay focused on that type of thing, mm-hmm. um, and it's a uh, you know to be a bass player is a, to be a, a relatively selfless person, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that um, not to pivot too much to our own situation, but mm-hmm. that was kind of what we felt like we wanted to get into this. Even if this whole channel interview thing goes nowhere, it's like it it feels like a lot of other base channels are serving the one kind of person that's like really slappy, really bright, really whatever, yes. really mm. flashy, because that's what Instagram wants you to do. Mm. That's what TikTok wants you to do, you know, and we kind of wanted to be the anti that mm-hmm. of the like where people have our conversations about like. Hey, this piece of gear is pretty good. You could try it if you're a normal bass player. <laughs> like, right, yeah. you know, you don't have to be Victor. You know, Victor Wooten's going to like this other thing. That probably means I'm not going to like it, and it's not going to fit me mm-hmm. for what I'm hired to do, yeah. right? Or what I even enjoy doing. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. It it it's kind of hoping to flip that on its head, and as we get to talk to bass players that we feel like kind of fly under the radar or don't seek out that kind of attention that we can be like, what are you really doing? Cause yeah, not yeah. a lot of people are talking about what you're doing mm-hmm. or someone's paying you to talk about what you're doing. Like yeah, how do we find the, the real stuff? Yeah, sure, giving sure, you a sure. fan fret base and we're like, well, that's cool. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd like, I'm going to play that on a country gig. Yeah, you know? right, if you right. call me, I'm probably not showing up with that one. Or if I am, <laughs> it's like five, five bases down the line. Yeah. If yeah. we're trying to figure out what I need. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's a, you know, we're sort of set into a, period of where there's the things that are sort of catch attention and there's the realities of, you know, things that sort of serve what I would consider the broader, you know, audience of things. Um, you know, I mean, I worked with a, a guy who's, I mean, his name is freak bass, yeah, you know, right. so awesome. I did yeah. a few albums cool. with him and he's a wonderful person and he's one of the most, and he's actually incredibly selfless, uh, bass uh-huh. player. Um, his style was predominantly from, you know, he's he came out of the sort of the the Bootsy Collins vernacular, mm-hmm. Larry Graham, uh, I guess to a degree, Flea, um, but all those people, you know, I, I they had a style, I guess that was sort of flashy, but I, I never really saw it as that too much. Uh, and when I, when Freak and I would work together, we probably spent less time on the bass than anything else. You know, it was the way he also wrote songs on it, mm-hmm. which was a whole different way. Right. For me, it was very natural. I, you know, I come up out of the classic rock, in particular Zeppelin, Hendrix, 
things that were very riff based. Sure. So writing on bass, yeah. it was, you know, yeah. sort of the same thing. Yeah. So, um, but, um, you know, it always went back to, you know, the song, what are we going to do? Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I couldn't, you know, necessarily get him to go back and redo the bass part because mm-hmm. he had laid it down and you're thinking, okay, we're just plugging in. We're just getting going here. And you would just do a pretty general sort of coverage. Uh-huh. And, um, he was not, in, you know, he wasn't all that interested in making sure that it was the quintessential bass player magazine type of um, talk point. Which is great. Yeah. So cool. Yeah. It's yeah. That's refreshing. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, is freakishly good He's at a bass. Yeah. Monster. He is a monster. He's got the chops to do it if he wanted it. Yeah. And he likes music. Like that, that's, I mean, it sounds dumb to say that, but he was very genuinely interested in many different types of music in, um, being able to sort of sonically stretch out, out above, you know, what I think was expected Mm -hmm. uh, of him. Um, yeah, yeah. At least during the time period I was with him, you know, um, because I wasn't the guy to necessarily come to, I wasn't, you know, you know, the bass player guy, you know, that wasn't the thing, you know, and there are, are people like that. Yeah. And now, yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. officially I've made it. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's cool. Man. Yeah. Uh, freak bass too is like, he's an entertainer too. And I, and I know it sounds like we're dogging on people who are entertainers. He has his own way. Like, and I think he's Twitch streaming now too, mm. a little bit. So like a man of the modern age. Yeah. Like he's just nice. playing, yeah, he's there's lights that. behind him and he's like talking to Chad or he's like that's playing cool, songs. Dude. It's, it's super cool. So that's cool. This is a plug for freak base. Yes. Yeah. My, my limited time watching it. It's like awesome. I follow him on Facebook yeah. and stuff and I'm just like, every time he posts something, I'm like, that's cool. Yeah. And he's a great person. Yeah. So it was always, it's always a joy to work with him. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And you know, not to dog on that kind of, flashy no. style at all just no. i think that's just not where where we are in our careers you know sure, yeah, in, yeah. in our in the places that we fit in with bass i so. think that everybody's got a different sort of uh you know intention mm-hmm. and yeah. some people are using a style as a way to sort of push their um career or you know brand or whatever you want to call it um but i bet almost to a person everybody probably in their own thing is thinking about, you know, is this sort of getting across as something that is palatable, Mm -hmm. you know, to whatever their audience is, it might be broad, it might be small, but I think everybody sort of has the same intention. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think it was really, you know, one of those sort of turning points with bass for somebody my age was like, you know, blood sugar sex magic marks the moment yep. where you have this whole thing where this guy very much sort of with Flea doing the slap thing in the same way that Eddie Van Halen had done the tapping stuff. Right. And um, I'm sure there's other people out there that had their own, you know, sort of peculiar way or eccentricities of approaching the instrument. Sure. But those guys sold a lot of albums and they, uh-huh. and you can hum to them and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, there came a point to, where he switched from that to integrating a more traditional style of bass playing mm-hmm. and proved that he was just as good at that, if not better yeah, than he was right. the other thing. Yeah. So um, a musician is a musician is a musician. Oh. Yeah, There is a, a good difference too in the context of a band and like knowing you're like, I, if I'm being hired as a bass player, I can't necessarily show up with that energy unless you get in the session and they're like, do the flea thing, do the, yeah, do like, the I want you to go crazy and what that's different. But also something like Red Hot Chili Peppers, where it's like the band has an understanding that this person is going to take this sonic space and this person's going to take this sonic space. And it's like, it's a recipe that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And so that's not at all a dig at someone like Flea because it's like so cool. It's such a part of the recipe sure. that it's yeah. like, that is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also like, I can't do that. And it works within <laughs> the framework of what they felt like was going to be, you know, a a song. Right. You know, yeah. I mean, I keep beating that, you know, sort of keep beating that drum, but um, it, that's really what it is. Anybody that's doing spotlighting a particular technique mm-hmm. 
and you know, like I'm a Van Halen guy. I, I grew up on that stuff and he did that, but he knew how to do it and how long to do it. Yeah. Um, songs. Yeah. And cause the right song. on the backside of one of those instrumental things where he was, yeah. you know, that was always the thing for a guitar player was you got to get to the next album because he's going to show you something that uh -huh. hasn't been done before right after that thing would be sort of the biggest hit on yep. the, on the album. So, and I would say the same thing about, you know, like mother's milk period, mm -hmm. you know, stuff with flea was, I mean, this hit, they had like three big hits off that album. The fact that he left that style was uh, probably as much an influence of switching producers a, and also probably getting bored with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And um, his relationship with, you know, probably Frusciani was one where he realized that he was in sort of a different plane as to what uh, the music of the band was headed towards. It was a, a it was a little more spiritual, not so athletic. Mm -hmm. So, um, but there are people out there that are, are technique driven like that and have great careers doing that. Um, it, it's not something that I sort of peek into very often, but. It's cool to see the way that after that record, it still manifests itself in like certain mm -hmm. ways on like one hot minute, it still comes up. Like he still pulls that trick out, but then oh, he'll yeah. pull right back. They refine it. Oh yeah, yeah he'll yeah, pull yeah. right back into it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, I think that it probably was one of those deals too, to where sometimes you get in and you feel like that when you're in a three-piece band with a singer, you got to cover a lot of territory and you sort of grab yeah. your, you know, from your bag of tricks or your sure. skills and use, use accordingly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, could you tell me, so I'm, I watched some interviews, I did some research before this, obviously I also know you, but there's kind of a period of time where you're also sometimes working out west or in Nashville or in different studios. Could you tell me about some of the fun or the interesting stories you've, you've exper experienced with bass players or what was that period like? Because I know that with the Lexington Recording Company, you kind of decided, I'm coming back here and making this kind of a destination of where you would want to come to have this recording experience almost. Mm -hmm. um, what was it like when you're going, you're actually traveling to other studios more often and like maybe who, who you're bumping into? Well, I mean, my, my travel experience and going to other places, which was actually something that you had to pull me into. I, okay. I mean, I liked traveling. Always. It was and, like that. Yeah. yeah I okay. mean, I, 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 I really like to stay at home, uh, right. the, you know, on, on a real practical level, I've got kids. So I like to be close to them. I like to keep the, I like to work longer for less, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and, and there's something in the neo-capitalistic community that is not often thought about, but mm -hmm. I don't mind working a lot of hours and I do like to not be under the duress of the red light and, you know, think of it in terms of I'm going to go into another studio. It's going to cost a thousand or 1200 or $2,000 mm -hmm. $2, a day and do that. So for me coming out of who I was influenced by, you know, I was like a big, you know, stones and Zeppelin, Dan Lanois, these people that were sort of creating studios, you know, temporary places. Yeah. So all that worked really well for me. Having said that, you know, in going to Nashville or New York or London or LA, some of these places I've been lucky enough to record at, it's always nice to learn. I always have an engineer mm -hmm. in those situations and I engineer all my own stuff when I'm mm -hmm. in my own yeah studios um so a lot of just keeping my mouth shut and watching people mm -hmm. and see what their habits are and listening and then making an assessment from that point i mean i worked uh with steve albini <laughs> Sick. sort of one of the you know best sort of tone to tape guys that yeah. there is you know um and maybe one of the last like, yeah right now yeah and, you know, the thing you got out of working with some of those dudes, I worked with some older English, you know, engineers, they were always very um, focused on making sure that you had to do as little work on the backside of it as possible. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of committing to tone. Mm -hmm. um, there was a lot of, you know, making sure that what you were hearing was something that you really liked that you didn't... Uh, brush it off and thought you could, you know, fix it up later, which is, you know, if I have a gripe as to where we're at in the current moment, 
as thrilled as I am that everybody has access to gear. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of access to real day-to-day education of it Mm -hmm. as to, you know, what am I really doing and what is is the decision I'm doing now? What does it really mean? Mm -hmm. Um, Manipulating sound is one thing, but fixing it is something else. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those, those, those travels always, and they were very broad, you know, I would work with, I remember being in New York, working in the the village. Um, the guy's name was Matt Vergeray. And he was John Spencer from John Spencer Blues Explosions, partner in a, mm-hmm. in a couple of bands in the studio. It's very 50s garage rock influence. I was working with a band called The Bosch. Working with him was, you know, a small, I remember it being a small amp through, you know, like an Ampex pre- um, everything was old, mm-hmm. you know, and he was very committed towards a particular sound and time period. And he was great at capturing that. It wasn't, you know, get a general thing and then go into the box and fix it up later. Mm-hmm. Then there was other guys, you know, Nashville, I mean, you know, Nashville is about coverage, mm-hmm. you know, the job of the engineers down there and they're great is, as little personality as possible on right. the the track. The the personality is going to come from the player, and that's mm-hmm. great. Um, but they're a sort of I don't want to mess this up. I want to stay out of the way. I want to get it. Mm-hmm. I want to commit to what the mixer and what the producer is expecting on the backside, which is killer. Um, it sometimes leaves you with maybe wishing that you had committed a little bit more to a particular type of character or personality of things, Mm -hmm. but they're great at that. Um, In LA was somewhat more uh, eccentric in nature with the people that I worked with. And um, it had very much the vibe of what I was doing in that particular thing. It was some score work. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was committing to a particular type of sound that worked for the the actual piece of music. So Mm -hmm. it could be varied from track to track. Um, um, So, you know, through those travels, I always found that the less I sort of steered and micromanaged things like drum miking and bass routing Mm -hmm. and um, that – the more I would learn, and sometimes you would, no, 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 I want to do it this way. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to go back to the thing that I'm familiar with because it's going to work for this because that's yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah. Kind of correcting the engineer for the vibe you want. Guiding as you go. them, yeah, yeah, to, you know. Guiding them is better. Yeah. It's I, not wrong. It's just like that's not the vibe. Yeah. And also making sure that, you know, you create a relationship in those situations to where there's a hierarchy to how the studio situation should work and um, everybody has a role and they have their 10,000 hours in and you want to respect what they, they bring to the table um, because that's what makes each project unique. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that as many, you know, I've done a couple hundred, like 300 albums and more songs than I would even begin to know how to count. But um, when you do that, the one thing, gear all of the technology that we have the only thing that truly is unique is the person that's doing it in that moment Mm -hmm. and that can be different you know i could record you two today and do one thing Mm -hmm. set you up with the same exact gear in a week and it could be completely different you could be in a you know uh, a different headspace um even it was the same song so it's what you got to let sort of people do their thing and bring that to it and then figure out, is this, are we headed in the right direction? This is the best thing for the project? Mm-hmm. Um, so, cool. um, I was training a guy on live sound the other day. And so we're using like a digital board. It's like an Allen and Heath. And so we've got show files and presets of things he's made. And like, as he's kind of learned, he's, he's focusing in that more and more and more. Anyway, we we get there and he's like, why is it just not sounding like it does every other week? Why is it just (laughs) not – like, why is the room reacting different? Why is Mm -hmm. the – it's like, welcome to live sound. Welcome to recording in general. Like, you can get close, Mm -hmm. but you – some days it's just like, that is not it. I don't know if it's because it's storming right now. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it – like, I can't tell you what it is, but it's different and you need to do something different. And that's great. You know, I mean, if anything, the one thing that 
if I have a piece of advice for anybody that's either working in the studio or working in live sound, whether, you know, no matter what the instrumentation for orchestra or just a solo, you know, bass situation, Mm -hmm. keep your hands on the faders and stay focused on the person playing it. Mm -hmm. Don't only listen, you know, yes, listen, but also watch them and try to use all the senses that you have to integrate yourself into the performance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that even goes towards the way I even set up my studios. Right. Like I don't even really like control rooms. I, I very rarely use them. Um, I have had them. Um, but I like to be able to t- have a conversation, sure. you know, um, the more you sort of isolate and separate and, you know, sequester people, I, I feel like then the communication starts to be less and less or less genuine or less off the cuff, um, less nuanced. Um, so therefore their performance becomes a little more stilted. Um, that could be just the way my brain works, which mm-hmm. it probably is. Um, but I also sort of feel like that there's, you know, if either of you are playing and you're sitting across from me, which is what I love. I mean, that's my favorite moment is when I'm right up mm-hmm. with the, with the player, you know, I could go or, you know, right, gesturing right. because I'm getting into what you're doing. Like during the take, during the take. Nice. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, cool. and, and, you know, moving gear, mm-hmm. you know, you know, constantly be doing something yeah. or finding a meditative sort of state to it all. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that it's all energy. I mean, you know, and that's what, uh, you, you know, go as really far what, too as to sometimes leaving control room audio, like bleed oh, open. Yeah. And like, when I saw that, I was like, this is, or, or honestly, <laughs> like as mostly as a kid, the first time I recorded with you, I was like 16, which was with Todd Clayton. Oh and yeah. It, it was like, I was so, I don't know why I was there. I'm, I'm thankful to be there, but I was like, that was the first encounter mm. I had. Cause I was just like this kid and I'm walking in, it's just a bunch of adults everywhere. And I'm like, this is awesome. But also at the same time seeing like, I'm like, there's another way to do things. Mm. What? Like, mm. I didn't know there's another way to do almost anything. Like, but we were chatting about this with a, a, a buddy of mine the other day. And, you know, a lot of the great studios, Sunset Sound or Abbey Road or those places, um, there's just gobos. Right. Or, you know, movable walls that sat off of the floor, mm-hmm. you know, three, six inches or whatever. And so there's always bleed. Yep. And that even went with bass, which is one thing I try to sort of minimize uh, because, you know, I don't want to take out unnecessary frequencies unless I have to. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but... So that's just the way that I heard music and, um, and taking it a step further, you know, I, you know, I grew up loving the Joshua tree. I loved, um, you know, the Zeppelin stones, exile on main street, those type of albums. And, you know, those are, there's an amp there and there's another amp there and there's the bass over there and there's the drummer. Well, you're making decisions right then, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, and I also think that, uh, for the recording geeks out there, you know, the mic is pointed at me for a particular reason because this is where the source of the information is. But over here, if somebody else is talking, it's just not going to directionally pick up. Yep. And as sort of elementary as that is, that you would be surprised in a session. Like if you were sitting here and you were singing and you and I were jamming and you're on the drums and I'm over here on the guitar, I bet you'd be surprised at how little of that information actually creeps in if you pick the right mic. That's what, right. Sure. If you pick the right direction. Because you know your tools really well. So you're you're saying, I know that this vocalist needs to go here because I know the drummer is here yes. and I know the mic I have in between them. Yeah. Or the mm-hmm. goba or like what what's reacting where. And the right size and that's where now stepping back, that's where gear really matters. Mm-hmm. Is, you know, what size amp are you going to use? Where is it going to be pointed? How's it going to be turned up or down or what's the it's to me it's never about and it took a long time to figure this out it's not about how it sounds unto itself. Mm. 
So you can sit there and you can geek out on a snare drum or they did. I mean, that and a boat full of substances led towards people taking three days to decide on a snare drum. Right. Well, that's sure. just dumb. Right. I mean, that, that is a yeah. waste of money and time and, you know, find a good snare drum, hit it. Yes, that's good. Now open the mics up. Now <laughs> yeah. let everybody play yeah. and start to think about how is this information going to hold up in tomorrow when I'm mixing it or 10 years when I'm mixing mm -hmm. it. And how about the mics that the singer, you know, uh, you know, you're here and the drums are over here mm -hmm. and you're playing, I'm going to need the, I'm going to need you to tone it down. You know, there's this sort of concept that everybody plays at full board to get tone to tape exactly like it should be. And then that's the way it should be done. And that's definitely not the way that it should be done. I yeah. mean, I think that, uh, in bleed goes into that. So it's like mm -hmm. scoot back, scoot over a little bit. Okay. No, I, yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to, you know, some of the greats, um, you know, Tom Dowd or uh, the guys that recorded for Columbia with Miles Davis and Coltrane, um, Spectre, you know, uh, Glenn and Andy Johns, Eddie Kramer. That track number being low meant that there was going to have to be a certain amount of summing that happened during the performance. And during, and then those moments combined with the way the studios were set up, I mean, Olympic and London was an open floor plan mm -hmm. with a control room, but big open, there was no ISO boothing at the time. And, um, so that's, that's fascinating. Great. It's really in the eighties when they start to dis, you know, disassemble some of those rooms and ISO everybody off so you could control everything, mm -hmm. which in my brain is almost even like a money move to make it more producer centric right decisions come later mm. we'll figure it out right. we'll figure it out and um that's been the nice thing to see about you know indian roots music and stuff like that come come along um as the industry's financially gone down sure. as far as you know mm -hmm. million billions turning into millions or whatever it is or at least for some people um and it kind of forces they were already headed in that direction a little bit, but it forces you to drop everything that's now unnecessary in the recording process. So I now think so. it's, you know, yeah, we found a good snare, but we might not let that snare or that drummer or that like even be in the real recording at the end of it. We mm -hmm. might not use the real drummer's vibe at all. Mm -hmm. We're going to put a drum machine there. Or we're going to put a whatever, um, or we're going to replace the bass with a synthesizer, or mm -hmm. we're going to play, you know, and all those things can always be used in a tasteful amazing yeah, way it's creativity but sure. it can also be used as like cookie cutter just you know yeah, yeah i think that there's a certain you know there's certain pacifiers and security blankets that people are really married to mm -hmm. and it's just not what i do mm -hmm. you know it's not how i hear it i'll use sure i'll use a click um i'll use you know whatever mechanism that is sort of supposed to guide the creativity in a particular direction but the i'm going to tune the vocals because i'm scared that somebody will figure out that they weren't tuned i mean i've had those questions from you know labels and right. management and a and people will be like did you tune those vocals and quite frankly it's another business what i did does it sound good yeah does it sound good do you like it or not because if you have to explain up the food chain that something was yeah. done to cover you mm -hmm. then you probably shouldn't be in this business mm -hmm. i mean i don't know if mm -hmm. you've ever listened to you know some of the bands that we all grew up on there's some pitchy great awesome pitching moments and some yeah. stuff that's mm -hmm. out of tune yeah, yeah. you know I know Zeppa files. I mean, we talk about the mistakes on the stuff as much as we actually talk about the good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I, that all of those, that stuff is very, uh, a matter of once again, it sort of goes back to, it sounds like sort of like a weird pat on the back, but you either are confident in your ears in your skill, or you can just babysit the project through until somebody yeah. else has right. to finish it for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so no, that's cool. Yeah. Th this is not super bass for. Is there a coupling of that, like with anxiety? Like, has anxiety ever been part of your like? How am I going to make this work? Every second gonna, of every you know, day. Yeah. Are you kidding? So, yes. so, <laughs> I mean, how do you mix this right now? <laughs> how do you right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you mix the the that voice and that like 
there's there's two voices in your head where it's like commit this because you know it's good because it's whatever versus yeah I I can't go back after this or or now, this is what someone's gonna want right or, yeah now part I of that is running a clean line too but I mean I li- I listen to what the artist wants. And then I, you know, anybody that's worked with me for better or worse, mm-hmm. they're going to, they won't be short on the fact that I have an opinion. Right. Yeah. And if you don't have an opinion or you're a yes person, I mean, I, I, I know producers and engineers and players where their first response to everything is yes. Mm-hmm. And that's just not valid. Mm-hmm. If you're yesing me all the time, then I have no, I have no need for your opinion. Right. Yeah. Now your talent, I may. Right. But, um, so my anxieties, I mean, you could write a book about them, but um, I'm not anxious about making a decision that I think in my gut is correct for the song. And my job is is a little bit of an interpreter. Mm-hmm. I have to take what you, the bass players and the drummers and the artists and the writer and so on and so forth, I have to try to figure out to the best of my ability it, what it is that you're telling me and how to commit that mm-hmm. to sound that is going to um, be with us for a very long time. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's, that's the other thing where I, I tend to live in maybe some of this is, is as you get older, you sort of feel this way, mm-hmm. but I don't want I went through a period when I first started where I was working with artists that were apologizing for their last work. And that was a lot of like, Oh, I did these three songs. And then we pitched it to a label or I worked with this band because such and such said that that's what I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And I learned really early on that I never wanted to be a part of a situation to where people were apologizing for it. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do something that I felt like had some element of timelessness to it. Mm-hmm. So there's timeless pop songs. There's timeless sure. songwriter stuff. Um, there's timeless in every genre. And I think that that really comes from following your gut and your taste mm-hmm. and the people that you're around, not to go chasing anything. that If you're chasing something that has happened because you heard on the radio, it's already done. Mm-hmm. I mean, so the best thing you can do with your anxieties as to your decision-making is – Trust, trust yourself, you know, be authentic in that way. And I think that that type of mantra gets a little overused. Um, like we're all supposed to sort of sit and, you know, own our way into the knowledge of what's going to happen. But I, I think if you're, um, you know, if you trust your taste and your skills are pretty sharp, um, then, you know, you have a good chance of being able to live with those decisions and not having to apologize for them later on. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yeah. No, that's really cool. And I think I think a cool overarching thing of all of it is like the contextual, like the contextual mind you have. Like everything you do seems like it's for the long game and it's for like the greater huge picture. Like you're such a broad picture person. So maybe you can get specific, but like when you're picking your bass tone, it seems like you're so like, yeah, but like really I'm seeing this huge picture and it seems like every decision you make is so contextual rather than yeah. in the moment so specific and nitty gritty. To be specific and nitty gritty, I, I think. I, I yeah, I think it's sort of a, probably a little bit of both. I mean, um, sure, sure. Sometimes you'll pick. I was in uh, England working with this older English engineer, and he had worked with an older producer named Mickey Most. Mickey Most was like a partner with Peter Grant, who was Zeppelin's manager. Mickey Most produced a bunch, of, like the Kinks, mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff, and. The engineer, Mike, had said, Mickey always said, pick one instrument that you can base the entire sort of song texturally around. And there was this great tune, and I cannot remember what it was, but it was a wah-wah on the congas. Okay. And he said, I when I mixed it, I mixed just everything was like, that was going to be the primary thing. Uh-huh. So sometimes you're going with a a bit of a sort of a broader view of stuff and going like, all right, we have to serve the song and I'm going to make sure that the personality comes from the players. But then there's always one sort of thing. And I think it, that, that message that he gave me also just sort of fit fit my sort of ADD Mm -hmm. fickleness Mm -hmm. is if I can concentrate on one particular character Mm -hmm. and um, in the, in that's where the bass amp thing comes for me. Okay. You know, it's like, uh, I have an old little maestro 
uh-huh. that I've had. It's a guitar amp. Yes, very much so. Um, when I worked with Sturgill Simpson, like I ran his vocals through that. Um, with bass, awesome. I would run. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, um, with bass, it's on a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it. I think I may have used it the last time you were in, maybe. Oh, like cool. it's routed to another room, so sometimes you don't even know that it's oh, online. I, I did notice that it yeah. was in another. I was like, okay, cool. And I, <laughs> I, I'll turn the volume off. Like there's no volume. Okay. And I'll just turn the spring up. And then you'll get the rattle. And uh, then inevitably, because those old amps don't really have a zero. Right. There's always mm-hmm. something going on with them. Yeah. You know, cool. if you throw it's a signal into bit. it enough, there's something. Yeah. So it has this weird sort of transient click to it. Uh-huh. And um, which sets me, you know, that subject of the top side of the bass, which is a very unrecognized frequency mm-hmm. area in bass these days. I love that. And sometimes I'll be like, I, I, I can build the song mm. around that. You know, there's songs like um, Crazy by Gnarls Barkley has one of those sort of, mm-hmm. that's a, ba- I don't know what it is, a hollow body bass, you know, uh, with probably flat wounds and a pick or something. I, I would have to sort of, you know, do some deep diving on it. But I remember that sound. Mm-hmm. And um, that's cool. so that's one of those instances where you, you do keep the sort of broad view of the song and how it should be. But there's one sort of character mm-hmm. that reaches out to you and you're like, that's the thing. Yeah. I feel like I didn't research this, so I'm, I, I hope I don't butcher it. It might have been like a Miles Nielsen song or something. Mm. Someone was using a Hoffner with a pick mm-hmm. and it was like almost featured in the song because it was so cool. Yeah. Don't remember what song, it, but I remember hearing that and being like, like I've always heard flat wilds described as muddy and unusable and you got to do this to it and that mm. to it or whatever. And I'm like, I didn't really hear many people using the McCartney thing or the right getting that mm-hmm. attack thing. When you're doing that, are you double maybe not double tracking but duplicating the bass and using that as the high end part and blending it back in with low end so that that question would sort of integrate the mixing side in there as well right. so when i was trying i think you know that was off of uh there's a really good album that miles uh in the band did called a heavy metal that I really, okay. lo- really love. That's one of my favorite albums I ever worked on for multitude of reasons. But, uh, we would use sort of a, a relatively consumer priced, I think it's a fender amp. And uh-huh. if they listen to this, they're going to kill me that I'm not getting this right. And, um, fast Dave, who okay. is their bass player. Love that name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> great. Amazing bass player and incredible singer. Great I'm slow car human. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's like three amazing bass players in that band, but in this case it was Dave Sick. and I can't remember what the bass was. It probably was a hollow body uh-huh. with a potentially flat wounds, definitely a pick. Uh-huh. And um, that would be amp for top. Definitely Sans Amp going through probably a Ventec with a Distressor or a 610, which is sort of my go-to, right. you know, probably the 610. And uh, so I had good low, high coverage. Yeah. And then when I mix, and I don't know if you want to get into all that, but the, the uh, mixing side of stuff does. is sort of, <laughs> yeah. So my mixes are always two signals in, 90% of the time, two signals in. And then by the time I'm done with the mix, it'll be three or four channels. Mm. So I like a pure one, mm-hmm. predominantly the Sans Amp or the DI. Um, there's a little bit of grit on the Sans Amp already. Sure. Because yeah. you actually like it to sound not like crazy. It's not like all mm-hmm. the way tilted on drive, but it is. It's yeah, usually it's generally about the, 12 o'clock. Yeah. And, um, and then I'll dupe that signal. Uh-huh. Um, and that'll be my low. So I'll have the regular pure signal and then I'll have a low and then I'll have a mid and that'll be the amp. And, um, maybe then I'll have a fourth channel. That'll be another duplication of the DI track, the sans amp track. And I'll distort that one. And then I'm messing. So now I have a real pure signal with maybe, you know, I love a pool tech, um, maybe a little transient designing going on with an SPL. Mm -hmm. 
no, I don't use any compression ever on any of the individual tracks and that never happens because I don't want any sort of phase issues. I don't want any sort of timing scenarios popping up. Um, the amp track, I'll generally cut out all anything from a hundred down mm-hmm. and then go nice. find the magic sort of frequency. And then my grit track, I will, you know, decapitate and mm-hmm. just do whatever. I mean, it's sort of fun. I, mean, I might just goof on it. Yeah. You know, that's um, cool. yeah. I run it through a phaser, whatever, just to get, that's my character guy gal. And then the low one is got a subharmonic piece of gear on it. Cool. And then I cut everything from a hundred up. Uh-huh, and yeah. on that and um then to mix to taste sometimes right. one of them won't make it um and then they then that sends off to a bus and then you compress that bus and then together. i'm compressing the bus and eqing that and um i'm honestly i'm not a big compression guy on bass yeah i mean maybe that you know uh my buddy Tom was saying, you know, I was going, <laughs> I was saying a little compression I use. And then he pointed out that, you know, I've got eight, six tens or whatever, and they all have compression on right. them. So I, I guess I do use them a little bit. Yeah. yeah. But if the needles move and I'm, I'm a curious sort, I'm like, that doesn't seem right to me. So I'm sort of feeling it out, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. knock the transients down a little bit. Mm-hmm. It comes from the player. Mm-hmm. Bad players have too much dynamic range right, does that make right. sense you're just looking at it bouncing all the time and i'm like yeah. this doesn't they don't have control over it mm-hmm. um and if that's the case then i'm working harder yeah mm-hmm. that's funny you said that because i kicked compression off my board the other day i was mm-hmm. gonna say we're both moving in this direction it's kind of <laughs> yeah. funny and we were having that conversation too where i was yeah. like he makes my there, there's this piece of gear i have called the noble preamp and it's very cool to have right now mm-hmm. very and cool. what it's and it's expensive and there's a way whatever it's a completely clean tube di and has two bands of eq on it mm-hmm. um which really what are the two bands cut it no it's only add oh, oh it's, it's only, only boost, add it's only it, and oh. it yeah it's funny <laughs> to me it Made feels like it's yeah right. <laughs> yeah it feels artificially More. dark mm-hmm. so that you can then bring stuff up it sounds like it shouldn't work and i would always think it wouldn't work and it's awesome um Mm. you know sean hurley uses one um jimbo hart uses one like i see him once a week on the road in the country circuit well you guys are like that too yes yeah you know bass players that there's you know like reds it's 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 like the answer to the ready or the ready ready, right yeah 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 yeah, yeah. um because that the form factor is massive but they sound very similar Mm -hmm. very 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 similar um, to me, yeah. if someone's going to disagree with that, they sound pretty similar. Uh-huh. It's just a clean DI and it has a little bit yeah. of a color to it, but, but the noble it's, they just made it in a way that can sit on your pedal board because mm. it's still pla- class A yeah, yeah, yeah. and it has, you know, and then it can power your other pedals out the side of it. It's, mm. it's all, it's a great idea, yeah, that is but great. it's just like, it's cool. Yeah. A great DI. That's all it is. It sounds a lot like the ready and it's like this big instead mm-hmm. of this big, yeah. you know? All that to say, uh, just the tubes that are inside that. Compress it. I'm trying to figure out. Yeah, I was trying to figure out like, why do I feel like I not need more? I don't need more compression. And when I'm adding compression, it just doesn't. Just feels like I'm doing it because someone told me to. And now I'm like, because it's compressive. Like that's the sound of that. Well, compression is not. It, it can have a reverse effect. Right. You know, it's not always louder. You know, it doesn't always cut your dynamic range the, the way in a way that sort of enhances things and control your transients. I think there's, there's just a particular type of way that a player plays that makes compression a real cool tool that is very much exaggerates the best and worst parts of a player. It's yeah. not, it's not going to cover a problem. It, it, mm-hmm. It's there to, you know, to, to pull out, mm-hmm. um, to enhance what it is that you do. Um, so if I I've worked with a couple and I won't name them, but you know, amazing engineers, like brilliant engineers and you'll come in and you'll look at their, you know, or listen to their stuff or in this day and time, we're able to look at the actual tracks and you'll think, you know, wow, there is like really controlled here and mm-hmm. it must be compression in in cahoots with a great player. Mm-hmm. And I'll talk to him and they'll be like, 
can use any. It's, you know, mic placement, awesome. player, yeah. you know, making sure that things were set up in yeah. a particular manner that does that. She's and then calculated. hands on the faders. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so compression is a, is a, is a tricky tool. I like to, I like to use it as a summing element at mm-hmm. the end mm-hmm. and then right at the very top, right. You know, right. As you're going in just to have a little bit of control. You know, mm-hmm. um, because excitability, you know, dynamic range, I want it to be broad, but I want it to be broad because you intended emotionally for it to be right. that way, not because you can't control yeah. the ship. I think inherently, too, the electric bass is not that dynamic of an instrument. That's true. Like, yeah. it, it, it's already, mm-hmm. it's already close. So, if you know, part, part of this process, too, for me has been like, I've been raising and raising my action, yeah. which is giving me less and less dynamic range. Mm-hmm in a good way. And that's another reason that I'm like, I don't really know if I need compression right now with the way I'm playing or with this particular bass Mm -hmm. setup or whatever. It's just working. And I know they're going to slam me later. It used to be where you back in the day, you know, like as recently as the mid two thousands to where not every room had compression, Uh Mm. you know, and if it did, it was like some sort of cheap DBX one sixty from, you know, 1997. Yeah. That just said soft or hard knee, which I, to this day, don't really understand, (laughs) you know, but that was it. Now you guys have, you know, the consoles all have sort of that SSL mentality to it. Whereas I can have Mm -hmm. a certain amount of compression and equalization on every channel and as many sends and returns as you would ever want. So therefore they can get a little bit of that. So it requires you guys to not necessarily Mm -hmm. have to do so much with your rig. Mm -hmm. Um, Which is scary in some ways in the live sense, (laughs) honestly, because you know, we're in these rooms where we don't know, Giving the up sound control. We don't know the engineers. So it's like, in some ways, I'm like, I want that control. But in mm-hmm. some ways, I'm like, they are professional. They have professional yep. gear. Yeah. They should do it. But it, it is this like, well, hope it works. Yeah. <laughs> I always I always feel like that the rooms, one thing I notice about the, you know, how broad the, the scoops and, you know, what they're doing, the cues on everything are, is they've got everything so set up that whether you like it or not, you're getting compressed with your right. bass live. Yeah, it's yeah. so happening. it's happening potentially twice. They might compress your channel sure. and then the whole bus. Yeah, on the two bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Because they don't want to. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, they don't have to. There's explain a little to the club bit owner. of a false sense too when I'm playing and the way the bass is reacting that it's like I'm getting to play a little bit on easy mode and I get to, <laughs> you know, whatever. And with it's the compression. like, yeah, yeah, sure. And it's like. No, I need to make sure I'm playing yeah. real good, you know, in a way. And two, some people use their tone knob in place of compression, where it's like, I need to knock off the transient a little right, bit. Right. I'm going to knock off the tone a little bit. You know, one thing that goes, it, it goes in a bit with the compression and the EQs and all this stuff. It's also where you're playing it. And I know it seems so, like players over the last you know bass playing switched in the 90s mm. when people started having and probably in the 80s but there, you know there was still a lot of movement out of the bass you know you get in the 60s you get joe osborne and carol Kay and john paul jones and Entwistle and chris squire and you've got these movers and they're really mm-hmm. obviously paul mccartney they're compositionally part of an orchestra yep four piece, 40 piece, 400 piece orchestra. And they're writing in that manner. And then when we get to Sonic's almost sort of beating over prioritizing the Sonic's over top of the composition, Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden the job becomes more low, tighter with the kick, Mm -hmm. these type of things, which I quite frankly think is if I want more low, I'm not going to struggle to get more low. I'll just stick a Moog on it. And, and, and that also became a thing, but I do see like somewhere in the late eighties, early nineties, there became this, the bass players started playing very much with the kick drum all the time. Oh yeah. And, you know, I have, you know, people come in and, you know, using sort of bottom, Let's say it's a, you know, well, I want to, I want my kick drum to sound like bottom. And then the bass player will play with him. Boom, 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 boom. I'm like, can't do that. He, yeah. yeah. You can't do it because I can't recipe. hear the kick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's an integration of the mm-hmm. way that those players decided or, yeah. and I, they probably never talked about it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right, you know? Yeah. And so if you, I, I think if you want to be heard, you have to find a place to, 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 to sit that helps not only the song, but does help feature what it is that you're bringing to it. Mm -hmm. 
And there's this, it's just very odd. And I'm not a theory guy. I rarely play in sessions anymore. You know, I, matter of fact, I, I sort of rail against too much producer playing these days. I think that, uh, like, I, I don't want ownership of any of it. Mm-hmm. I want to just sort of try and navigate through my own personal sort of um, interpretation of what the players in, in the, the songwriter has said and the artist and then my taste and have a broad view of it. And almost always I will focus in on the kick drum, the bass player occupying the same space. And the cool thing about vinyl coming back in is that if you have all of that, that low frequency, mm-hmm. it's going to jump. Yeah. It's going to jump yeah. and you're going to get less songs mm-hmm. and less material on. And, um, so it's made people think a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And um, and so it's even been fun to bring bass players and in, in drummers in and go, this is sort of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And if you watch my two-bus compression, it shouldn't be taking these masso swings mm-hmm. the way it is. But when you guys are landing in on the first note of the chorus, everything's going that way. We have to decide, is that a good thing or is it a bad thing? You know, because there's an overall volume yeah, conversation yeah. to have. How so we're actually sort of going backwards. Too. Like it yeah. might not actually be a good thing. Yeah, it's, absolutely. Especially if it's not EDM. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, rapid fire uh, in, in the in the very quick <laughs> kick drum and bass as a general, like these are all going to have to be like pretty general answers. Yes. Do you like the kick drum to take the lowest low frequencies and the bass to go a little above that? Are they sharing the same? Like, I'm talking down to 20, Depends 35. on the song. I, I tend song. to be more uh, bass lowest. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Yeah. Does that mean you It depends on the, the, the band and song. Like, just a little bit, or... I mic the kick pretty tight. Okay, yeah. You know, I mean, I'm sort of usually front head off and, right. and inside of it, and then one ribbon mic a couple feet back to give some length out of it. But uh, I like the low cool. tends to come more from the bass. But if there's a lot of movement... I'll yeah. notch out diff- different spots for each one of them. Yeah. So nice. that's the next thing. Uh, low MIDI area. It seems like a lot of guys just show up. They immediately cut the 300 area or the 400 or the whatever. Do you not think about that because the way you're layering? Depends or- on the base. Yeah. It well, does. Like uh, like if I'm dealing with a Hofner or something like that, it sort of gets boxy in the twos. Right. Yeah. Um, if I'm dealing with like a, a P or a jazz bass, I, don't, I try not to touch it at all. Yeah. You know, if you have to EQ, if you if you're jumping to EQ too quick, you don't have the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not getting it right. Yeah. Next rapid fire: uh, flat wounds, dead rounds, or fresh round wounds. I know it's all song dependent. It is. Like, I, I mean, round wounds is sort of my go-to, but yeah, flat yeah. wounds I'll use maybe twenty-five percent of the time. Yeah. Nice. Cool. Cool. Same way. Somebody, uh, somebody walks into your studio. Are you are you pulling a jazz or are you pulling a, a P? What's what's the first hand? Uh, well, actually, my fa- one of my favorite bases is a hybrid of those two. Cool. Um, I, it depends if it's a if it's a slower uh, tune, I'll go with something that has more length, and I always consider that a P bass type yeah. of thing. Mm-hmm. If it's a if it's a, a song with more movement, I'll go with the jazz. Cool. If it's a rock tank, you know, thing, always the always a P bass out type of thing, or you know, the old Yamahas or whatever. Those are great. Carson knows nothing about those. Yeah, those are great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they, I mean, they're just trees. Yeah. yeah. I mean, right. you have to yeah. you have to really hold it up. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. cool. Still my turn on rapid fire. Sure. Can't wait. All right, let's <laughs> talk. Uh, one of the most, in my opinion, completely passed over bass players is uh, Van Halen, Michael Anthony. Mm. Come on. Yeah. What, in the way that that sits in this mix. Do you see it as A, underrated, and B, like, how does that look to you when you see that sonic range? And uh, a buddy of ours always has said to me, he says that he thinks actually that uh, the engineer actually gave more sonic space to Eddie sure. and his guitar than yeah, he did yeah, to the bass. Definitely. Yeah. Well, well, sure. How does that sit with yeah. you? Like, how do you, how do you view that? I think Michael Anthony was a pretty selfless character. Yeah. Yeah. And he also sort of knew that his strength w- was going to be to support this one of a kind yeah. person that was in the band. Yeah. Um, and he, and he got his through his harmonies too. So, oh, you know, yeah. he wasn't shorted on the, on the amount of focus that he was going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also varied from album to album. You get to, you know, two is warmer than one. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's mixed in a different room. Fair warning. It gets chunkier. Fair warning sounds great. Yeah. Um, and that's got some more aggressive bass parts on it. Some more movement. I think Ed plays some on that album too. Mm-hmm. And so I, or at least was <laughs> yeah. sort of. 
Yeah, you know, I've heard Because he was those quite rumors. the bass player. I've I mean, heard those rumors. Yeah. And, you know, I love Michael Anthony, though. How better to lock in than yeah. to play your own bass part? Yeah, sure. You know what I mean? I mean, Michael <laughs> Anthony, you, every, every band has to have that guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And he was that guy for sure. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the live trio is just perfect of, yeah, of instrumentation. But all right, let me hit one more band reference. You said you're a big Zeppelin guy. <laughs> What's that Zeppelin song that you point to that you're like, if I could figure out how to recreate that in my daily, what's the song? The On sonic bass sound. Or no, just no, no, no. Overall, what's the sound of the of the maybe not you could even go as broad as a record, but is there a song or a moment that you're like, if I could figure out the recipe for that sound, I'd be a rich and happy man. Well, I think that figuring out the recipe is not as hard as just uh, fig- is you know getting all the ingredients. Mm-hmm. Um, Babe, I'm gonna leave you is probably my favorite Zeppelin Absolutely. tune. I love Ten Years Gone. Yeah. It's good, people you know. There's cite, a lot going on there. People don't cite one a whole lot. I feel like as yeah, um, well, it's so quick as reference, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, they were put cool. together in August, and by the end of September, the album's done. Mm-hmm. And awesome. you know, it was. Uh, in, you, there's so much mystery in those tracks. As far as yeah. bass, though, Ramble On is the like unbelievable. Yeah, it's crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We always talk about how there's not a ton of reference uh, on like really getting his tone you see he's playing this jazz you see you know he's playing the the old yeah, acoustic guy a lot right yeah i think pretty much solely until the 90s when he found all these crazy got, actives yeah, and stuff right. but it, you really don't see a ton on his tone which it might have just been uh acu- acoustic amp jazz bass cable it could have been that sort of was yeah. what it was and it's all about the man who yeah. played it that would have been solid state yeah Maybe. yeah yeah too um, yeah, it's just, I mean, just a freakish, talented crew, <laughs> yeah. you know, they were yeah. all serving each other really well sure. too. And I think Paige knew how to stay out of the way mm-hmm. as a producer of mm-hmm. micromanaging them was not, it, it didn't sure. have to happen. And I don't think it did happen. And if it did, they yeah. just moved on to something else. So, you know, yeah. jump all giants. That's what cool. Do you, what do you say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sick. Well, man, I think that's uh that's all the time we got. Thank you so much. Absolutely. This so is much. so cool, and it's yes. it's weird, and it's I love that. Oh, it's yeah. just like a good conversation to have. Uh, that's kind of our next thing is that like along with talking to some bass players, we want to talk to producers and recording engineers that we really yeah. respect. That I it's like that. a lot of people don't talk about that that section of it. Again, I'm not just trying to hype us up. But it's just like the conversation is worth having. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, j- just in closing on, you know, bass related recording is that somebody has to manage the thing when you guys are done with it, you know, mm-hmm. and right. the more, you know, the way that bass players can, can you know, control is not the right word to serve themselves as well as serving the song is to know what a mixer thinks like, what a producer thinks like, mm-hmm. and because then yeah. your, your, your thought will pass through all of the gatekeeping that just has to happen to get an album done. Yep. So, you know, I, I have found the less stuff that I touch then the more of the character or the player comes out. And, um, if you, if you come in prepared and with a smile and, uh, in a good attitude, um, that serves, that'll serve you really well as any piece of gear will, because you remember yeah, that big. stuff, you know, when you're working with people. That's so, big. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, we appreciate you a lot. Awesome.